Welcome to episode 118 of The Professor and the Hack, where we look at politics across Australia as we uh, stumble to the line in this election campaign. And it's uh, hello to the Professor Peter Van Onselen. How are you, Peter? Stumble. Good, Hugh. I mean, I've never heard a better way to describe it. Uh, that's how it feels. You know, we've still got uh, over two weeks to go and it feels like the campaign's, you know, just about to be over. But I guess at one sense, when you talk about a campaign and the pointy end of things, it's only just starting, isn't it? Because it's that last two weeks that we tend to, as commentators and political scientists and analysts, talk about the undecided voters really starting to zero in on where they want to park their vote. And it is in that end period. And of course, pre-poll voting opening up means that more and more people are choosing that than used to. Once upon a time, you actually had to have a good, valid reason to do a pre-poll. Now you just can do it. It's a right to walk in and do a pre-poll. So for various reasons, the number of people who pre-poll has gone up and up and up, which has slightly changed campaigning, hasn't it? Because it means that parties can't just rely on the last minute vote. They need to be aware that they need to be competitive right throughout a campaign to target those pre-poll voters too. It also means that they are, as the campaign comes down towards the finish line, chasing harder and harder for what is effectively a diminishing pool of people who haven't already voted. Mm. And one of the only things that, and they don't entirely know this, there's not a lot of quant around this, but there is a bit of an assumption that people who pre-poll tend to have their minds made up a little bit more than the undecided voters who leave it till the last minute and do it on the day of the vote itself. So they, they bake in a little bit an expectation that pre-poll voters, in a sense, already know which way they're going, having parked their vote. But that's not a scientific assumption, that's a hunch. You use the phrase that the campaign is soon going to be over. The sense I get is that people are over the campaign. <laughs> I've never, I, I just have no recollection of a campaign which has so failed to achieve liftoff at any point. And this seems to be remarkable and a little bit dispiriting in a sense, because I just don't get the sense that there's great enthusiasm other than partisans who will always go for one side or the other. Any great enthusiasm for the choice on offer. Do you agree? Well, that's how I feel. Uh, and, you know, it's it's both my passion and my vocation politics. But I I feel disillusioned and disinterested in the campaign, even though I'll often enjoy campaigns just for the sake of the politicking of the campaign. In this instance, I'm disillusioned by that side of it. I'm disinterested in the policy debates because they feel like a bit of a tweedledee, tweedledum discussion that isn't really uh, energising me. And if anything, then I add, in a non-clinical sense, depression because I'm frustrated and disappointed and depressed at the lack of planning and ideas for what comes next with the challenges that we face. And we've talked a lot about that, but I, I feel like both major parties don't go down that path. I know we're going to talk about interest rates in a minute, but you know, at the National Press Club, when you had Jim Chalmers squaring off against Josh Frydenberg, they're both meant to be the hope of the future for both their parties, assuming Josh Frydenberg holds his seat, uh, irrespective of who wins or loses government. But I had a very simple question for them at the press club, which neither of them answered. And Josh Frydenberg didn't even attempt to answer it. He actually gave the exact opposite answer to what I was asking. But it was a very simple one. How are you going to bring tax to GDP in line with spending to GDP? Because at the moment, as we know, 23.9% is the cap on tax to GDP that the coalition has pledged, but spending is at 27.8%. Now, that difference is the structural deficit, essentially. It's certainly a deficit if it's not structural. And uh, I just wanted to hear what their solutions were, because let's face it, you can only really do one of two things or a little bit of both. You either put taxes up or you cut spending, or you do a little bit of both 
and then you try to bring the budget eventually one day into balance. And neither of them engaged with it. Jim Chalmers at least acknowledged implicitly that he was refusing to engage with it. Uh, Josh Frydenberg's answer, if you can believe it, was to then just tell me that we're the party of lower taxes and we'll commit to keeping taxes lower, which is actually giving me an answer that's the exact opposite of what my question was, which is how are you going to bring the two back together? He was actually, in a sense, saying he'll make them worse. So you've nailed what is essentially the dirty little secret of the major trends of, of government here, and there's no other external trend, and all these new parties that are rising, independents and all the rest of it, none has made a feature of their campaigning a balanced budget. Hmm. We seem to have, the political classes have read the wind, that voters are not interested in anything. I noticed that Jim Chalmers used a line about, we're not about austerity, we're about quality, or some such line like that, in the spend, mm. you know, indicating that their spending will introduce productivity gains and so on, the better for the economy and all that kind of stuff. But the fact of it is, is that no one cares anymore about a balanced budget except for weirdos like us. And it's fascinating, though, Hugh, because I was a critic of the really simplistic way that the coalition for years would talk about debt and talk about the need to balance the books. You know, I recognise that debt can be a good thing if you're in a low interest rate environment and the debt that you acquire, you put into productivity enhancing or social good or whatever it might be. There are reasons to carry debt, just like at an individual level, there are reasons to carry debt as well, to buy a home or whatever it might be. So I was cynical of their simplistic argument that debt is bad, we need to balance the books. But now we're in this situation where we are following this global trend that debt doesn't matter. And you know, there's, there's a whole economic school of thought that debt doesn't matter, which you know, no one wants to admit to in the mainstream political debate, but they're kind of ascribing to without saying so at the moment with the way debt is spiraling. And if you're not going to have that debate, about how to at least get the budget back in balance at some point with a, a future vision to paying down debt in some form, there's only one other way to manage debt. And this is not an unfeasible one, but no one really talks about it. You can actually grow your way out of the significance of the debt. If you continue to have an imbalance between taxing and spending, debt will continue to go up. But if your economy grows faster, then the debt accumulates, by definition, your debt burden is reducing. Now, this is more a tradition of what has happened in developing economies rather than developed economies because their levels of growth have always been much higher. Places like China and India and Indonesia, for example, they fluctuate in some of them, but particularly in China and to a lesser extent India, they're high growth and therefore they can grow their economy such that the debt shrinks relative to the economy. It's harder for developed countries to do that. So if that is the Australian goal to sort of, you know, grow the pie as it were, well, they have to really give us a bit more of an explainer around that because the size of debt in a rising interest rate environment versus the difficulties of having growth as a developed economy significant enough to, to shrink debt relative to the economy, that, that is a new phenomena if it's to happen because it's only ever been a developing world phenomena before now. And you can't grow that economy through fiscal looseness. Yep. You can only do it through making policy shifts that improve productivity, so that there's, which they're not doing. Which they're not doing either, which is exactly right. So let's go to the interest rate rise. The, the last one, as people have noted, was uh, felt to be the last nail in the coffin of uh, John Howard when, uh, when an interest rate rise was dropped in an election campaign. How does this shift, if at all, 
the difficulties for Scott Morrison to get re-elected? Well, I think it's hard for him, but I think it, and, and I think it's it's sort of the bad news at that bigger picture level that he'll now have to contend with. But I think he has arguments that Howard didn't as easily have when it comes to combating this specific issue. I think he's got problems at the election. I'm not suggesting that this is is minor in in that sense, but it it's this is a manageable one if he can get the other components of his campaign right to be able to win. And the reason I say that is this. When interest rates went up during the campaign for John Howard, the cash rate was much higher than it is now. It's at an absolute all-time historic low, and it always had to go up. And in a sense, other than the need to combat rising inflation, where our cash rate has been, having it rise is actually a sign of a stronger, not a weaker economy, other than the caveat that this response seems to mostly be about inflation. Now, when John Howard had interest rates go up, it was a different environment, a much higher cash rate. And, and just as importantly, the reason it was politically damaging for him was because, he, firstly, he was up against Kevin Rudd, who was painting himself as fiscally conservative. But secondly, he'd also come off the back of a 2004 campaign against Mark Latham, where their whole raison d'etre was where the party that you should trust to keep interest rates low. So to then have had them already rise a few times before the campaign and rise again during the campaign, it was a diabolical political mix for John Howard. This time, this is the first rise, and it's from an historic low. That of itself isn't necessarily the problem for Scott Morrison, and he can use it, or at least he's trying to use it, to turn it against Anthony Albanese and Labor by saying, well, with future rises on the horizon, who do you trust to manage the economy? It's almost a sort of a, a reverse version of, of, of Howard's tactic against Latham back in the day. I'm not saying it's going to work, but I'm just saying that I think on the specific issue of rising interest rates, is it a problem politically for Scott Morrison? My answer to that would be that he can spin this one in his favour much more easily than Howard could. And potentially, objectively, it, it could even be better for him than for Labor because of the way he would spin his argument. Lastly, where it's a problem though, Hugh, is that it requires yet more spin by the Prime Minister. And one of his weak points, I think, in this campaign is that people are starting to, if I could put it colloquially, think he's full of shit. And for him to have to spin again to sort of accentuate that fullness of you-know-what, uh, I think that's the biggest risk in this because he's already got so many balls in the air. How does he add another one to that mix as he tries to spin his way to, to victory? Well, quantum mechanics, I'm told, uh, from interviewing a recent Australian of the Year, allows for the possibility that a piece of matter can exist in two separate places simultaneously, which is a kind of a mind-spinning basis of what happens on the atomic scale. And this is sometimes comes to mind as a metaphor when you see uh, Scott Morrison. He spins so fast that his position on a variety of things seem to be able to inhabit <laughs> two completely different positions almost simultaneously. He's spun them so many times. But he does have the great advantage with his interest rates of getting uh, getting strong cover from the Reserve Bank itself. Mm. When it put out the statement, uh, the key sentence being, the main driver of the higher inflation has been global developments. And that is a, that is a big shield for Scott Morrison. I saw Josh Frydenberg using it in the uh, press club debate against Jim Chalmers. Yep. You know, not our fault, folks. But, but yeah, and, and, and they are right about that. You know, the Reserve Bank, to the extent that it is independent, and it is independent of government, but it's appointed by government. That's the reason I, I put that little caveat in there. But the, to the extent that it's independent, it's right, you know, in making an independent, you know, sort of hard-headed economist view that inflation in Australia is primarily driven by international events. It's not necessarily helped by a lot of the pump priming and cash handouts and so forth that people are receiving, but by the same token, people are receiving those because cost of living pressures 
are what they are. So it's it's a bit of a wicked problem in that sense. But firstly, how many people are really paying attention to that? And secondly, the Labor argument, of course, is that irrespective of what is driving higher inflation and whether it is or isn't in the control of government, it is resulting in cost of living pressures on people at election time when a government is seeking a fourth term and they might therefore just, you know, that might give them the impetus that they need uh, to move on from the government. And of course, the Morrison argument back to that is that the alternative of what you can move on to is more risky than us. So don't make a bad situation worse. That is almost their argument. It's not exactly uh, what you would call an inspiring argument to re-elect the government, but it seems to be the best that they've got at the moment. And we'll find out whether it works, I guess. Yeah, and the difficulty also I'm seeing from uh, shipping lobbies and also in Australia and also from the Food and Grocery Association, the very strong suggestion that uh, the inflationary pressures, particularly around food items, massive part of the actual economy and where people feel as if the economy most affects their real lives other than housing, there is a still a kind of a pipeline of inflationary pressures that that haven't peaked. Yep. And so whoever comes in, their perception is, is that particularly in those areas, the cost of living is going to continue to rise, you know, at least into the next year. And and that creates difficulties because it keeps the pressure on the Reserve Bank to maintain interest rates. And people feel, I remember this from when they went up before. I mean, you know, my first property that I bought was, was 23 years old in 1984. So, you know, older people have been in the property like market like me know what it's like and have felt that frustration that when the cost of living is deepest upon you, they put up interest rates on you. It seems wicked. Yeah. And I, I remember, you know, my parents in the late 80s when interest rates were going sky high, having to sell a, a small investment property that they had and being very grateful that the family home that still had a mortgage on it uh, was a, a, a privately arranged fixed rate so that they weren't therefore having to, to face those higher rates there. But of course, back then, the level of indebtedness relative to income was nothing like it is today either. So interest rates were infinitely higher, but the capacity to pay them with relative debt levels was, was much lower. But that's all good and well when interest rates stay low with the prospect that they go up now. One of the things now, Hugh, I mean, we're talking about rates possibly rising by 2% over the next you know, year, year and a half, two years. If they go up by 2% or a little over that, that's almost a doubling of interest rates in terms of, you know, if the cash rate goes up by 2% and it therefore sends mortgage rates up by 2 or a little bit more than 2%, given that you can get, you know, a rate of anywhere between 2 and 3% up until recently for your, for your home loan, that is going to double the interest bill. It won't necessarily double the repayment because that's obviously structured with paying down the principal as well. But an interest-only loan at the moment of $1,000 or $2,000 a month will double or go very close to doubling with the projections over the next one to two years. That's going to be pretty startling for a lot of people because a lot of people are hocked up. And I, I don't imagine that their financial plan includes them being able to cover a doubling of the interest payment on their mortgage, much less if they have investment properties, much less with all those other cost of living pressures that you note, particularly around basic items and so forth. So it's there's a lot of risk there for for individuals uh, and you know how they take that out or how that makes them feel politically going to, into this election is an unknown isn't it do they blame the government or do they look at the other mob and go wow i know what's coming i'm not sure that i want to risk that side of politics it's unclear at this point for me which way they go yes and the reality of the pain is that it'll fall to uh, whoever wins this election to sort it out yes 
I'm really intrigued by something that came out of Scott Morrison's mouth in recent days relating to integrity commissions. So he has doubled down. He's called them, as we know, kangaroo courts before, and he's been called out mm. this in recent days by the head of the New South Wales ICAC, saying people who make those arguments are buffoons, without naming Scott Morrison in person. Oh, let's just say it, Hugh. He called him a buffoon. Yeah, okay. I mean, he may, he may, he may not have said, Scott Morrison, you're a buffoon, but he said anyone who calls them a kangaroo court is a buffoon. And, you know, we've got ample tape of Scott Morrison calling the New South Wales ICOC, ICAC, I should say, uh, a kangaroo court. So by definition, the, the question is, Scott Morrison, how do you feel about being labelled a buffoon? It's a great word, isn't it? Well, it's a fine word. And what he responded to generally is a word which I don't think anyone in the public remotely understands. And that is saying that if you produce a National Integrity Commission, you're going to have a public autocracy, mm. whatever the hell that might possibly be. But <laughs> uh, whatever his form of words, I think we can just take it that he has clearly repositioned himself as hostile. He would say hostile on principle against the notion of a National Integrity Commission. So... What happens in the event of a hung parliament if indeed Teal independents or others who might be Teal or other sort of people, Helen Haynes and Azali Steggles, mm. get to decide who is the next government? And they have to, in order to keep faith with the people who voted them in, they have to say, well, a condition of our support is a National Integrity Commission. And Scott Morrison has placed himself, I would think, it would seem to me tactically unwisely, in a position where he has zero wriggle room. Yeah, well, I, I think this is a, a fascinating question and there's a, sort of levels to it, okay? So firstly, hung parliament, both sides fighting to try to get that minority government. We're assuming that both sides fight for it. I could imagine Scott Morrison potentially saying, you know what, this is going to be the proverbial disaster zone. We're not doing it. Good luck to the Labor Party. That's, that's one potential option. Whether his colleagues would go for that's another matter. And does he get rolled? They, they would not walk away from the prospect of government, surely. And, and hence all the options here, Hugh. So that is one option that he tries. And it, it either happens because he, behind closed doors, says to his team, this parliament's going to fall over within 12 to 24 months, so let it happen, let's see what happens. And maybe they make a political assumption that they can go down the path of Tony Abbott and wreck the hung parliament, okay? The other option is that his party says to him, no, we're not with you on this, and they roll him. Or he rolls himself on the issues and he just backs down. Or they roll him for a Josh Frydenberg if he even holds his seat, Hugh. Because if he doesn't, uh, the only alternative becomes Peter Dutton. And I'm not sure he's going to be any more engaged on this than Scott Morrison is. So there are these different permutations to how that might happen. And don't forget climate change, because I think these teal independents, as well as the pre-existing independents, it's Integrity Commission and climate change that are the two issues. And I think that most of them, particularly the new ones, if they win this time around, they will want to be able to say to their constituents in traditionally safe liberal or national party seats, they will want to be able to say to their constituents, we put reasonable proposals for an integrity commission and slightly more action on climate change on the table to the conservative side of politics first, because we recognise that that's where our seats lean. They rejected it. So then we went to Labor. That becomes really important, I think, in the way that they would you know, put this to satisfy those voters who have entrusted them with representation and to give them a chance of winning again in three years' time rather than suffering the fate of, of well, Tony Windsor didn't run again, but he tried at the following term and he lost. Oakshot, I, I believe, did lose, or at least they were both going to lose. So, you know, that would be, I think, the way that works out. Then it gets down to a numbers game, doesn't it? You know, where, where do the two parties 
actually sit in the new parliament if it is hung and how close can either get with whom's support. But it, it will be a fascinating prospect. You could easily see a scenario where Scott Morrison either voluntarily or by force moves aside in an attempt to negotiate minority government. But I tell you what, there are going to be a lot of liberals or at least nationals who won't want to do that. You could even have a break in the National Party and the Liberal Party as a result of trying to form minority government in a hung parliament. I mean, imagine that, Hugh. You know, the, the Liberals find a way to come to terms with the Teal independence, and then the Nationals just turn around and say, you know what, bugger you. We're not joining this, and then it's all over anyway. So the level of messiness in a hung parliament, I believe, to be much greater on the Conservative side than the Labor side when trying to cobble it together. It's interesting, isn't it? Because the argument goes that um, Tony Windsor and Rob Oakeshott, when they did the deal with Julia Gillard in 2010, were, as you point out, from conservative seats, traditional rural conservative seats, broadly conservative. And so they were punished for having done a deal with the devil, the Labour Party. Mm. For the Teal independents, they have a difficulty because if they're seen as running at the first opportunity to Labour and supporting a Labour government, those traditional small-l liberals who put them in there will say, well, you know, I might look again for a liberal candidate next time, and they're finished. But equally, if they were to stitch up a deal with Morrison, for example, and sustain a government with Morrison, and I, I totally agree the, with the points you're making, that if the Teals get what they want, the National Party would go into conniptions. You know, their policy differences with those are so wide yep. that um, I don't know how you'd hold a coalition together in minority government with the Teals getting what they want. But let's say they did do that. And somehow or other, they cobbled together a three-year term. The government was able to sustain a three-year term. There is a, a significant risk at that time that Labour voters in those Teal seats and Greens voters, traditionally in those Teal seats, say, you know, we didn't actually really vote for you for a Morrison government have another term, so therefore we'll find another independent. Or In other words, you know, the votes disappear. They're vulnerable either way, I guess is my point. Yeah, I think that's right. And then by extension, when you look at well, what happens within the conservative side of politics, they've got a couple of choices in the aftermath of this election, irrespective of whether they win or lose or how many Teal independents do or don't succeed in working their way into Parliament. There is a phenomena at play no matter which way it ultimately lands. The big challenge for the right of politics going forward is, firstly, can the smaller Liberals and the Nationals coexist in the same coalition? I'm not sure they can. Their differences are greater than the things that unite, it would seem to me. And, and I think that's been brewing for some time, but is quite prevalent now. So that's the first question. But even if they can somehow find a way to, to, to work together in some form, whatever that might look like, the, the Liberal Party is going to have to think about where it wants to focus its attention, because there's also a disconnect between the outer metropolitan seats and the traditionally safe Liberal seats in the inner city areas uh, or in the affluent areas in terms of what matters. And what, what I'm noticing under someone like Morrison is a play towards those outer metro seats, even just the way he's trying to win this election. He's trying to pick up seats in the Hunter. He's trying to pick up seats in Western Sydney. He's looking to some of those outer metro seats around Melbourne in the wake of the Dan Andrews uh, pandemic response. He's prepared to lose seats to Teal independents, even if those Teal independents don't support a coalition government. Now, that play can ultimately, if it is a long-term play, that you're sort of, if you like, giving up on the blue rinse set of the Liberal Party that was once your base because it's too interested in climate change and integrity and not worried about 
nuts and bolts cost of living pressures. If you give up on that, firstly, it's got a fundraising effect. But secondly, it can have a real policy effect, actually, because a lot of the things, a lot of the policies that the Liberal Party supports that Labor would happily change other than the wedge campaign are things that favour the high end of town around capital gain structuring, family trusts, uh, all the you know, negative gearing to some extent, although that, that is utilised more widely, but it is more beneficial in particular to people with higher net wealth. Now, does the Liberal Party start to move on some of these issues in a way that works for it in mortgage belt seats? And all of a sudden, does that change the thinking of the Blue Rinse set who love post-material values when their material well-being is assured? But if both sides of politics start to have kinetic agreement on changing the things that allow the elites to stay the elites, well, then all of a sudden, you know, maybe things like climate change and integrity become irrelevant to people living in multi-million dollar mansions who have got all sorts of tax breaks on the way through. So I, I find what comes next after this election infinitely more interesting, irrespective of the result, than I find the campaign, which is a Tweedledee, Tweedledum election. That's a fascinating insight into the potential breakup and the reforming of politics in, in Australia, depending on how all this goes. We have still a couple of major events which might help shift people's votes. We've obviously got the leaders' debates. Yep. Allowing for the fact that that could create some vast new shift, but we, we can't anticipate exactly how that might go. How do you read where the election is at the moment and where you think it's likely to land? Well, f firstly, Hugh, what do you think of my idea for the, the next debate is the Channel 9 one on 60 Minutes. It follows Lego Master, which, you know, at different points my children have found interesting. Wouldn't it be good for Channel 9 to hand a big bag of Lego to each leader and tell them, while you're answering your questions, you've got an hour to build a house and you're going to get judged on both the house and the debate itself. A little bit tabloid maybe, but you could just imagine them, couldn't you? Like I think modern politics has sunk to the point where they'd both be sitting there trying to put together their pieces of Lego and try to build a nice house at the same time as answer the question? Well, look, it gives a huge uh, on-field advantage to Scott Morrison, who, as we know, does know how to build a cubby house, or at least for Instagram purposes, knows how to build it. Well, you're assuming that the photo op uh, matched the reality on that one, but maybe you're right, maybe you're right. There are moments to change this debate. There's that debate, then there's the, the Channel 7 one uh, that I think comes on after Big Brother, so I'll be an equal opportunity attacker of of both networks and their programming before the debate. Why can't we have it on Channel 10 after MasterChef? We could get them to cook us a meal at the same time as doing the debate. Yeah, ca ca curries for everyone. And for Channel 7 after Big Brother, of course, they'll do it in their beds <laughs> underneath a sheet shot in sort of night vision <laughs> while they argue policy and debate. The, the prospects are horrendous. Well, I, I'll probably already be in bed because the debate doesn't start until after 9. And, of course, the ABC aren't getting a debate, uh, and there's a bit of conjecture about whether that's reasonable or unreasonable. And, and we're not even sure if Scott Morrison is going to front the National Press Club to answer journalistic questions in the last couple of days, as traditionally happens. We know Anthony Albanese will. It's a bit up in the air about Scott Morrison. He, I hear he's leaning towards doing it. But, of course, the last time he did it, he got monstered by journalists with all sorts of unhelpful questions. So I, I hear he's, he's reticent to do it again on the eve of an election, but we'll see. So I'm not going to let you dodge your um, how are the horses running horse race question. <laughs> but on that point about the ABC, how appalling is it? What signals is Scott Morrison sending that on Q&A, uh, they've invited both leaders. Scott Morrison won't turn up. Mm. David Spears, you know, respected political journalist handling the questions from the audience. Albanese will turn up and will get a well, a free kick of sorts, although, of course, you're always vulnerable to a certain degree when you turn up at, at those things. But what signal does it send that Scott Morrison 
loathes the ABC to such a degree that he won't take part in it. He'll take part in debates elsewhere, but not on that one. Yeah, look, I think it's a really bad look. And uh, I'm not uh, saying that this is fair or that I agree with Scott Morrison on this, but I'm understanding about him wanting to knock out certain people from moderating debates because, you know, he can have the argument that he thinks that they're sort of anti-liberal or anti-him. And, you know, I'm not going to name names, but the same argument could be used by him against me, for example, or against you. You know, the point is, I I can understand those decision-making processes of you want to sort of cherry pick who you think's most appropriate. But I guess my point is this, when you've got David Spears there at the ABC to be able to do it, frankly, Andrew Probin as political editor as well. I mean, these are people who, you know, sort of the left think are too right wing. I wouldn't have a clue which way either of them vote at all, ever. I wouldn't have even the slightest insight into where David Spears votes. And of course, I know him from Sky Days before he turned up at the ABC. So the idea that Scott Morrison would deny the ABC an election debate when he's got someone like that who has moderated infinite numbers of debates over the years. And this is the point. He used to host leader debates, including with Scott Morrison at Sky. Exactly. There's no excuse. I guess my point is, whilst I don't agree with the cherry picking of people that you choose at the organisation that hosts the debate, I think that that's the tail wagging the dog. I can understand it. Okay. But there's no way I can understand nor accept nor tolerate rejecting the public broadcaster hosting a debate, which would be free for all to use. That's the whole benefit of it, right? It goes on the public broadcaster. Any channel can choose to also simulcast it if they want to, as opposed to it being selectively only utilized by Sky 7 and 9 under the structure that we're having this time around. And when you've got someone like David Spears in particular there to do it, there's just no excuse. It also just reinforces, reminds those voters for whom a public broadcaster is a, a matter on which they cast their votes that uh, this is a prime minister or a political leader who disdains and doesn't like the ABC. And And don't be surprised, I mean, I don't know this, but don't be surprised if Anthony Albanese makes this point in his debates on 7 and 9 for viewers to to hear his his view on that, or at least on Q&A when when he appears, you you would be, it would surprise me if he didn't try to make that point. So I've looked at the polling. I've looked at the seats. I I still think it's difficult for Labor because they have so many seats that are vulnerable. They've got five seats under 1%. Mm. You'd have to presume that the coalition, they certainly hope to pick up a couple of those. They've got to win eight seats net in order to take government in their own right at the minimum level. To me, it still seems difficult for Labor to win in its own right, despite what the overall polling says. What's your view? We'll put it this way. In order of likelihood, I'm not going to make a prediction that there's no way Scott Morrison can win this election. I'm happy to wear it as a badge of shame if he does. But I will say this. I think in order of likelihood, the most likely scenario, I would say equally likely is a Labor majority or a Labor minority. I'm not as pessimistic as you in terms of Labor's perspective, their chance. I think they're equally... I can see the pathway to each, but it's very slender, the pathway to the Labor majority of 76, 77, 78. If there's a blowout in the last week, they can put an aid in front of it. I can find the seats, but I think that's unlikely. So I think there's an equal likelihood that they fall just over or just short of the majority line. I think they're the two most likely scenarios. I think third is a minority... Sorry, yeah, third to those two is a minority coalition government. I'd say fourth is a majority coalition government. And I would say the least likely scenario is Labor with an eight in front of it. Well, I mean, I guess the least likely is the coalition with an eight in front of it. But 
that that would be the order that I that I go through. So in other words, this is Labor's election to lose, but the coalition is close enough with two weeks to go if it's good enough and if there's gaffes or if there are big shifts that it can take advantage of. And we shall watch it as it happens. Peter Van Onselen, great to talk to you as always. Likewise. Listening to The Professor and the Hack, a Network 10 podcast. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. Thanks for listening.